Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. I'm delighted that uh, my guest today is Melissa Di Donate. She is the first female CEO of Stu's, F-U-S-E. And since taking charge in 2019, she's led the business through a period of rapid growth, including two acquisitions and a successful listing on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in May of 2021. Stu's IPO represented the largest software IPO in Europe last year. And Melissa also became the first woman to take a multi-billion euro company public on the Deutsche Force. In 2021, she was named Woman of the Year by the Women in IT Awards. And it also included in Computer Weekly's most influential women in UK tech shortlist. She's also the inaugural chair of the 30% Clubs Technology Group. Now, a bit about Suze as well. It's a leading global open source solutions provider. It supports digital transformation for some of the world's biggest companies. It helps power 60% of the Fortune 500. It counts 13 out of 15 of the world's largest pharma firms, 9 out of 10 of the largest retailers, and 13 out of 15 of the world's largest finance firms. Its clients include companies as big and well-known as Microsoft and slightly more obscure ones like Hillary's Blinds. They use Suze's solutions to run and manage all their business critical applications across cloud infrastructures. Now, the key point here is the products are developed using an open source innovation model. This means the software is developed collaboratively by tens of thousands of people and is open to anyone and for any purpose. Suze then takes that software, develops it further, tests it, refines it, makes it ready for their business customers, and it charges a fee for that service. It's got 2,000 employees based in offices from Seattle to Seoul, as well as obviously across Europe, and also works with Linux, enterprise container management, and edge solutions. Now, the key point is I want to talk, first of all, about open source software. So without wishing to generate a lot of eye-rolling among my listeners, for me, open source is one of those issues that you sort of grow up with when you work in tech and you sort of talk blithely about open source software but you never discuss it and you never if you're someone like me you never really understand it and there are also certain things at the back of one's mind that would concern me about open source software which I want to explore with Melissa but Melissa why don't you start by and this may seem to some of my listeners like teaching them suck eggs but if you can just describe what open source software is. Happy to and thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I'm really pleased to talk about open source and why it matters. It's a, I've spent 25 years in proprietary software. So much like yourself, I didn't quite get open source software like I do now, having been a user and developer and really engaged in leading this company, even to the public markets. Open source software has been around for decades and open source is built on the premise and the philosophy of the democratization of software. Open source communities really truly believe that software should be developed for public service for free. It should be developed collaboratively, should be developed in communities, and it should be delivered at no cost to any user for any purpose. 
Now that sounds fantastic, especially for someone like you, right, Lord Vesey, in, in the role that you're in. Um, open source democratization of software, giving it for free, developing it collaboratively by tens of thousands of people, and it's open for anyone for any purpose. Now, the open source community is quite valuable. Now, we can never get access in proprietary software to the millions of developers that one could get access to when you're in a community. You know, there's, there's some statistics perhaps that might be useful for your listeners. The Economist Open Innovation Barometer tells us that 56 million developers contribute to open source projects globally. 35% of all enterprise software contains some code that's been developed in an open source community. The European Commission, as another example, has found that a 10% increase in contributions to open source code generates a fundamental increase in GDP, somewhere between 0.4 and 0.6%. So it, it has value. Now it has value for GDP, has value for people, has value for communities, has value for you know, the world really, and not just financially, but also gives us access to a huge amount of innovation. Now, I was an executive at Salesforce, a well-known German company called SAP, and being proprietary software businesses, we could never hire 56 million or 30 million or 20 million or the 50,000 people that work collaboratively on SUSE Technologies today. Just, you just, you're not going to have that many people that can collaborate. And not just that, but you're getting access to diversity, to open thoughts, to decision-making, to inputs you, you'd never gain access to otherwise, coupled with the fact that an open source community, in fact, powers the most rapid innovation in history, in software, full stop. No single private company can replicate that. Open source is a development model that you know, really does bring down walls, not put them up. It doesn't allow you to develop inside of a business, but allows you to develop inside of a very broad, vast global community. And that is um, really what we call here at SUSE, the power of many. And it, and it works. 99% of Fortune 500 companies rely on open source. And more and more governments around the world are building their software, the, their approach to serving their constituents, their people around their countries utilizing open source technologies. So I may sound a bit of a sycophant, but there's a lot of real results that we can all gain from an open source software model in the world at every level. So I'm fascinated by this. I'm really pleased we're speaking about open source because as I have indicated, I don't know nearly enough about it. And I've got a gazillion questions about it. I mean, I think the first uh, more of a point than a question is that because open source has been, you know, is talked about all the time, but never really explored by people like me. One of the aspects that I sort of picked up on is it, it feels political with a small P. I mean, you talked about the democratization of software and it's a bit, you know, the parallel would be, say, Wikipedia, where people are sort of ideological about Wikipedia, about the good that it does, and it's the most visited website in the world and so on. And another kind of ideological thing in the world of intellectual property is, you know, open commons, the, the idea that you can have uh, open licenses for intellectual property. So do you feel, is this kind of developer community a sort of ideological about effectively kind of breaking the stranglehold of proprietary software. It does, right? I mean, I think I think that it does. It's it takes us forward as as a community. It creates innovation. It creates power from everything from, you know, I mean and and, and keep in mind that you know, open source powers air traffic control centers and jet fighter planes. And by the way, if anyone's had a mammogram or a CAT scan, it's probably powered by 
open source technologies that turn the machines on and deliver the power that delivers solutions. So, you know, this is real software, right? It's not the kind of small stuff to power websites, which it can too, of course. But yes, it, it, you know, it's, it's giving the ability for us to collaborate in a very open way. Now, obviously that, that sheer force of collaboration that you're putting into the hands of global contributors could be risky, right? I mean, there's a power to the community of millions of developers working together to what we would hope solve some of the world's greatest challenges. But the flip side of that is that there could be sinister approaches to way that you're attracting and delivering software and solutions. And, you know, as, as you said, there's lots of hands in, in the pot, right? And sometimes that's not always the, the right way or the good way. And there could be some sinister um, actors in play too. And that's where SUSE comes in. And, you know, I think the other thing that, that, you know, that we do is that we protect the enterprise from gaining access to certified software that's developed in a community that's safe and secure. Because let's be honest, right? As much as we want to put innovation in the hands of all the people around the world, there are risks to that at the same time, right? Um, we want to pull walls down, not put walls up. We want to allow you know, data and information to be in the hands of everybody. But at the same time, sometimes those hands are not, you know, have the greatest intent. So, and, and again, that's where SUSE comes in to make the software um, you know, applicable to governments, to agencies, to enterprises in a very safe and secure way, because um, clearly, you know, there, there are issues when, when everyone has access to everything. So I want to talk a bit about uh, that and cybersecurity in a minute, but I just, in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of open source, I mean, if I, if I transform myself tomorrow into a fantastic coder and developer, do I just go to specific websites and they say, um, there's a bit of open source software here about supply chain solutions. Do you want to have a go at improving it? I mean, how does it work in practice? What is the real world like in, in this? Respect? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you go to GitHub and GitLab and that's where most of the code sits and you can collaborate by logging in and logging on. You can enter inside of communities and there are different communities for different software development systems. So for example, for Linux, there's a huge developer community of which we all collaborate. In open source, there's something called upstream and there's something called downstream. Upstream is when you enter into the development cycle, almost looks like a triangle in a bit. If you enter in the upstream cycle, like you say you want to participate in developing Linux or a container solution or a database solution or whatever software, I mean, there's just thousands and thousands of community projects that are running every day. You can go into the upstream cycle. You can you know, poke around, see what's happening, see what's going on, and you can contribute you can learn, you could read, and you can actually become part of the community that develops the software. Now, when it hits the top of the pyramid or the triangle in a way, it begins to go through some series of security measures to make sure, as we talked about, there's nothing sinister going on, that code's not going to break the systems of the software of which you're developing. And then it comes down the other side of the triangle into something called downstream development. And that's where folks like ourselves and other large-scale um, open source companies begin to pull the core source code out of the community work on that code and then package it and deliver it for a fee, which is obviously what you described earlier in the, early in the start of the podcast. But yeah, I mean, you can absolutely join the community. In fact, we'd love to welcome you to some coda, uh, some coding with Sousa. If you are so inclined, <laughs> Laura Daisy, please join us in, in some development. I think, yeah, I think that's how you, uh, it's, it should be part of my strategy to stave off dementia as I rapid, rapidly pass middle age, but it's apparently learning new new skills is the, is the way to do it. But Again, you know, Microsoft's one of your clients, and obviously I wouldn't tempt you to be rude about one of your clients, nor would you dream of being. But I mean, again, part of the kind of debate of open source for years has been, you know, Linux should eat the world, you know, software eats the world, Linux should eat the world, in the sense that why hasn't open source just taken over? Why is there still proprietary software if you've got this extraordinary community of open source coders? Like I said earlier, having spent 25 years in proprietary software, 
it's amazing to think that, you know, they haven't, uh, you know, gotten into a much more of an open source core base yet and, and not done that. But, you know, there's room for everyone to do everything in, in technology around the world, right? There is absolutely room for proprietary software and development. And that development model is right for those proprietary businesses. Open source software and the commoditize it, you know, you have to commoditize open source, right? Microsoft and SAP and Salesforce, some of the world's greatest tech brands are, of course, a for-profit business, at least for us shareholders, right? Um, they have to be able to give a return and obviously sell more software and, and have a revenue stream. We just develop a revenue stream in a very different way in a very different origin. So there's, you know, there's lots of benefits to open source software over proprietary. And there's, there's lots of benefits, I'm sure, for proprietary at the same time. But I have to say, having come out of proprietary for 25 years, now going into and having spent the last better part of three and a half going towards four years in open source, I don't know if I'd ever go back. I don't, I don't know if there's a place for me because I, again, I, I believe open source is more than just a development of a methodology. It is a way of living. It is a way of thinking. It's a culture, right? And, you know, some people call it a bit of a, of a cult culture and sycophantic culture, but whatever you want to brand it in the most positive way, it does develop a huge following. And a lot of the folks that believe in this democratization of software don't, will never see themselves working proprietary. So there's room in the industry, you know, for everyone, including Microsoft and other great brands. Um, but, you know, you made, you made one point, which is that Linux should be taking over the world. In fact, it is. You know, I can remember a Microsoft, actually, a Microsoft executive a number of years ago, jumping up and down. I, I don't know if you ever saw this, but it, he was, it was very public. You can probably find it on YouTube. But jumping up and down about how Linux is the, is the enemy, right? It's the enemy to Windows. And, you know, they'll, they'll never survive and will never be ready for the enterprise, will never be safe and secure, um, and will never develop that community that's going to drive innovation with code. And um, it, it actually has happened last year. Linux, for the very first time in history, surpassed the number of users of Windows. That's a good stat. It is a great stat. And, you know, when we look at what the future holds for Linux, uh, I mean, look, we're at the beginning. And that's why I say, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity industry to be in. And when we think about, you know, the power of innovation, going to the cloud, going, devices are becoming smarter. Your toothbrush is going to be able to talk to you and compute. Um, the, do you remember that? What was I the bought, movie? I bought a smart toothbrush the other day. Oh, good. It didn't okay. live up to expectations. It did it not. It didn't tell you you had great white teeth. Like they it, just, it just tells me to brush for two minutes, but it won't talk to me about anything else. Okay, but it, but it will soon record exactly what tooth you've missed, right? Because the days of that movie that, I think it was Tom Hanks or something where he was in the, it was Apollo, one of the Apollo movies. You know, Houston, we've got a problem. Remember those days? Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got a problem. They don't know how to solve it when they're in the spacecraft that's in space. Today, Linux sits inside of satellites, aircraft, space devices, and machines that actually can compute at the edge, meaning that, you know, when there's a problem, you don't have to call down to Houston anymore. The compute power at the edge is being overtaken by containers delivered with a micro version of an operating system that, by the way, is called Linux. 95% of those containers at the edge contain an operating system that's powered by Linux, right? So forget about the big on-prem, even the cloud. Edge will eat cloud for lunch. And as we move to the cloud, Linux is going to pick up more and more and more. And all of Linux being developed in open source, you know, I think it might be a, a place you want to spend some time. Is there also just uh, slightly random questions which you, you're provoking me? Is there a hybrid model? We, we talked about kind of Windows versus Linux are more of the proprietary software companies kind of saying, 
not exactly opening up, well, perhaps opening up all their code and saying, can you improve it? I mean, as a consumer, for example, you know, and I'm using LinkedIn and so on, I can think of lots of things that would improve my user experience. And you think of things like TweetDeck and so on. Is there a way that software runners, proprietary software, the open source community can go in and kind of improve it and suggest, suggest ideas? I know that's not the same question as the people who find the bugs and get the rewards for finding the bugs is people actually improving the customer experience yeah i mean that you know improving the customer experience is i've always said feedback is a gift you know and positive and negative both are gifts open source community is made and built innovation on feedback so that, that's the core thesis and tenant of how open source works because obviously people contribute say oh that doesn't work or here's a fix to that bug or whatever it may be and the experience could be influenced positively, maybe, you know, some cases, maybe negatively as well in the community. However, there is a hybrid model. It's called a um, open source core and a proprietary wrapper. And that's kind of taking the best of both. And there are lots of technology businesses that are coming out of the UK, out of Europe, and obviously out of the US, where the core is open source. So all the codes published on GitHub, so you can get access to it but it's got a proprietary wrapper around it that gives a little bit of differentiation. So, so it's kind of reversing, it's reversing yeah. what I was suggesting. You, you take the open source stuff as the platform and then you build your own proprietary customer experience. Code around it. Yeah, so it's a bit a bit the opposite, but you know, I think, well, you know, to your point, like I say, you know, feedback is a gift and the best way that we can improve things is to actually gain, garner and institute the feedback that we've gotten and show that we've listened. But um, and that's what open source is all about. I mean, that's why the innovation well surpasses that of any proprietary business. Another random question, because I'm always worried about paying the mortgage. Why do these developers, are they kind of, give, they're giving their services kind of for free, these 56 million kind of hobbyists, if you like? No, absolutely. We range everywhere from hobbyists to, um, you know, well-known open source developers. And it could be anyone. Can they make money from, can you make money from being an open source developer? If you're employed, like you know, we we employ you know thousands of developers around the world that we actually pay a salary to, um, as does other open source businesses. You, you absolutely can make money as an open source developer, but not everyone, not all 56 million, are actually making an income from the contribution that they provide. And remember, we went back, we talked a little bit earlier about the philosophy of open source, right? We talked about the you know, the way of living, the culture, the belief of open source, and some people contribute purely because they really believe in the contribution that they can make. So some get paid, um, like our engineers here at SUSE, some get pay, don't get paid like, you know, kids in their in their bedrooms coding for fun and contributing. So it ranges, really. I just very quickly, though, presumably open source is already moving into the metaverse. It's already, the principles are exactly the same. The development of Web 2 software, as you develop Web 3 software and metaverse software, that will have an open source community. It will have a community of open source. Yes, people will contribute. And will it have an influence on open source or vice versa? Yes and no. It will because it will eventually be collaborative, right? It is going to be. It is collaborative. Everyone's contributing. And that, that is the tenant and thesis of open source. But, you know, will it influence either way? Um, maybe. I mean, you know, the thing is with open source today, what we've proven in the communities over decades is that we found a way as a community to drive innovation to embrace a diversity of thought, to have everyone collaboratively communicate, to collaboratively deliver and really create innovation like at a pace we've never seen before. And that could positively, definitely influence blockchain development for sure.
I want to kind of get into the weeds a bit on cybersecurity and so on, because it kind of covers two aspects that I'm interested in. One is, you know, you mentioned earlier that more and more governments are adopting open source software. Now, I remember when I was tech minister and the government digital service was kind of humming and very exciting and innovative. You know, the talk was all about open source software, because in theory, it will save governments a ton of money if they can have open source software. And it will also do what uh, governments urgently need, which is it won't lock them into a kind of proprietary software use case that kind of stays static for 10 years and relies on constant financial outlay to update. It will be flexible and innovative as user needs change. So if you could tell me a bit about kind of how governments use open source software, and then we'll turn to North Korea. <laughs> Fantastic. You know where uh, I'm going, don't you? So let's start with the positive and then we'll talk about the risks, which you've touched on already. <laughs> we shall, we shall. So okay, let's let's talk a little bit about now. Obviously, we're a software company, not a cybersecurity one, but that, that does not mean, of course, that security is not on the top of every single yes, we're gonna talk person. about security minimum, but just talk talk to me how a government, you know, a, a government minister is and the civil servant is totally risk averse, and the words open source kind of flash red. So how are governments using open source? And is it kind of the way forward? I, mean, you know, I think it is the way forward. And it's the way forward because, okay, there, there's a couple of things. Now, you, you wouldn't as a government, let me be very clear, right? You wouldn't as a government extract open source software straight from the community. You, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do it as a government. You wouldn't do it as an enterprise. You wouldn't run mission critical workloads of any sort off of generic open source software, okay? So I think what we have to identify is that you were never going to, as a government or as a, as a mission critical you know, workload of any sort, going to take downloaded software from the internet, okay? To make it simple. Now, what you do have to <laughs> you do- You found my level. <laughs> what you do have to do, however, is as a government, it's our obligation to provide the most innovation in the most safe way we possibly can. It's in fact, even more so important for a government to have a diversity of thought. You cannot think like, one MP, you need to think like the voice of the people. And that's what open source represents, right? And it's absolutely no surprise that cybersecurity, you know, ransomware and all of this is the top of every government agenda in general, okay? Now, looking at Cisco and cybersecurity ventures research, the cost of cybercrime for governments is predicted to hit more than 10 trillion by 2025. Yeah, government predicts by the same year, 45% of organizations and governments will have experienced some sort of attack either on their software or their supply chain. And that's a three time increase from 2021. Now, what that means for a government is that we need to have the benefits of open source. We need to have diversity of thought. We need to have the voice of the people. We need to have rapid innovation. We cannot be locked in to one single vendor. And that's, and that's a, a, a big reason why that's very appealing for governments. But the philosophy is that you know open source security can't be delivered and downloaded you know from the internet without a safety security and without certification. In the U.S., there's something called FOCI. FOCI is the certification that's put in place from a security perspective to ensure that all open source software is secure and delivered certified into any government institution. So the point is that you want governments to have the safety and security that could be delivered from a company like SUSE. And that's been tested and it's been secured versus, you know, versus just downloading from the Internet, A, but have the benefit of the open source community in general. You know, one last thing I must say about open source in general and open source, you know, general open source software is that the, this, the business itself has an excellent reputation for security. 
Now, security is a process. And I mean, the idea of continuous improvement and it's built into every product. I mean, it's almost like the community doesn't welcome sinister acts against secure product development because it inhibits their ability to continue to innovate. So you know, the community itself does, you know, really forces and checks and does immediate, not the top of the pyramid, right? That's a, that's a community run security check. That's just done in the community. So you know, when they firmly believe in developing a community, they also firmly believe in the protection of that community. And, and that's why we think that the government can have the, the best of both worlds. They can have a secure, safe environment with various you know, certifications to have and be delivered, but also gaining the benefits of open source. That community kind of policing is a very cool policing, absolutely. thing, which I didn't wasn't aware of. And again, it kind of echoes, I mean, Wikipedia for me is the easiest parallel because people obviously use it every day and understand it and the, the policing of editors. But in terms of say, I want to, I'm a government minister and I want software that's going to run my passport application service. And you say, you obviously don't take it off an open source, straight from open source. Do I go to a company like Suzanne and say, I want to develop this and you develop the product using open source software or do I go to, who do I go to? Yeah, absolutely. You can come to a company like Suza, I mean, we're the world's largest independent open source company in the world, um, which I'm quite proud of, uh, going through a huge amount of transformation, listing at all the accolades that you've mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, you go to a company like Suza, we can help you, you know, provide you the under, underpin and the underlying technology to develop applications inside of communities with the help um, of the open source communities, getting access to some of the world's most in innovative, brilliant minds. And, you know, I mean, as we think about tech in Europe, right, you're, you're not limiting yourself to the UK or to the, or the continent or anywhere else. You're actually opening the doors for possible input and innovation for people all over the world. Um, and whilst that community is constantly policing and providing a safe haven and a safe place to deliver software, you get the benefits across the board. So you sort of answered my question earlier about the community policing, but obviously the, the most obvious risk of open source and the sort of counter argument to why Linux hasn't taken off, taken over the world, the counter argument says, why the hell would anyone use open source software? Because surely there's a North Korean developer farm that is busily trying to screw with Linux. How do you, I mean, it's the most obvious way of using an attack vector, if I can put it that way for a hostile state is to get into the open source community and start messing with the software. How do you stop that? Yeah, and, and so a couple of things, at the top of the pyramid we talked about earlier, which is the, the, the in-house security within the communities. Um, the community itself also police from a, uh, polices the, the software from a perspective that they try and hack. There's a whole sub-community inside of open source, inside of Linux, as a matter of fact, that actually hacks the software and finds holes and roots in, inside the software, and then notifies the respective companies that have downloaded those components to alert them to unsafe areas. So, um, and then you have companies like SUSE, and, and you know, we, we, the software itself, remember at SUSE, is free, okay? We're giving away the software. What we're charging a service for are the certifications for it being a safe environment of which to operate. So we check the code and we certify it. We, you know, all, all of the guarantees around the safety of the code prevents the, you know, the, the Korean, Russian, whatever it may be, um, you know, negative contributors that could have an impact on the development of Linux more broadly. And that's why governments, that's why enterprises, that's why mission critical systems, that's why satellites don't download a free version of Linux. They don't use a CentOS or an OpenSUSE, which is the free version that's not certified. You can download and use those for free. I mean, you know, we are the core underpin and the, and the core kernel that sits inside of 
of autonomous cars like BMW and Mercedes that were released in, in late uh, 2021, there's a version of Linux called Safety Linux, and that sits inside of, inside of cars. As they come off of the assembly line, you certainly would never have a free version of Linux running, you know, changing, you know, taking your kids to school. You know, you wouldn't do that, right? So um, what we've done is created a version called Safety Linux, which is to be used specifically for use cases like an automotive that powers cars and autonomous driving, just like you would a government. So there's there's guardrails and there's you know gates that you need to jump over in which to be considered to deliver solutions in particular areas or industries or purpose. But there's also the benefits and you know of of all the other versions of free software that could be used every single day for developers and websites and email systems that are all completely free. Uh, just another random question which we can insert, but where does Android sit in this ecosystem between open source and proprietary? Well, Android is is open source. Android is is the opposite of Apple, right? I mean, it is exactly the heart of what of what open source believes in. So is it part of that kind of hybrid model where de individual developers can improve or refine Android software? Absolutely, they can. But in the actual device, that's your hybrid we talked about earlier, right? It's the it's the proprietary code sitting on a on a, a on an open source model, right? So all the development of Android is collaborative in a community, but the device itself could be manufactured by you know a a manufacturer like Huawei or a, you know Nokia or whoever it may be. Um, that is the proprietary component that runs and operates the software. Right. Let's talk about some other bigger, wider questions. Well, not bigger, but wider, different questions. Um, so you sit in the UK, you personally, as it were, your company is floated in Germany. You mentioned earlier about the opportunity for people who are using open software to have access to millions of developers throughout continental Europe and, and indeed the globe. I, a uh, terrible confession to make, but just between us, SUSE was not a company I was very familiar with before we decided to do this podcast. Yeah. And yet you're a kind of European poster company. So is there within that something about European tech? What is your kind of perspective, given you're now a European tech leader of where European tech is going and our constant nervous breakdown about you, the US being much better than us? Um, you could probably hear, and maybe you're listening to hear from my accent, that I wasn't born in this country. So I, I do have an opinion about this. Uh, I've been in the UK now um, 17 years. I'm both British and an American passport holder still. Um, so am I. It's a nightmare. Oh, that over a cocktail. Um, but yes, I, you know, I, I would consider myself to be a truly global tech leader, but, you know, American British woman. Um, I studied Russian at university. I live in the UK. I run a German listed company. I, I believe wholeheartedly of really designating the UK is as the European hub for technical innovation, technology innovation. And that's why I stayed. That's why I stayed here for 17 years. Um, I've never done anything else in the UK besides UK tech or global tech out of the UK, because I, I philosophically believe that we have some of the most brilliant minds and abilities and capabilities in government that supports technology and innovation. Everything like what you've been working on, um, you know, from the curriculum, right? Putting STEM in the hands of our children um, and putting technology and making it a, you know, a sexy place to be, right? And so we, we have the possibilities that maybe a lot of other countries don't. So I've stayed this long. I think that the European tech ecosystem that we're part of is very strong, you know? So what am I? What's Sousa? Let's, we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk a little bit about European tech. Um, you know, we are a global business and you're not the only one who never heard of Susan. I mean, it's so weird because you probably have turned on a coffee machine this morning or got inside of your BMW or your Mini Cooper or your, you know, taken a plane out of Heathrow that's powered by, 
Sousa Technologies, you've been influenced, saved, and delivered to, into, into wonderful places powered by a technology underpinned by Sousa, and you didn't even know it. And that's my mission, right? My mission is to be the outspoken, enthusiastic, passionate CEO of Sousa, to get Sousa in the hands, and not just the hands of technologists, but in the minds of people like you and I to understand how powerful Sousa is around the world. We are a global business. Like you said, we've got 2,000, no, more than 2,000 people now. I'm everywhere from, I think you said Seattle to, to Seoul, something like this. So they're everywhere around the world. And the UK is a very big hub because my executive team and I actually sit in the UK. So, um, you know, we get a lot of questions. Are you UK business? Or are you still a German business? Uh, yeah, we're a global business. Um, so I think that that's a lesson to all of us. Now let's talk for a minute about um, what's going to happen with UK tech versus right North America or even Asia, because obviously China is now picking up pace. You know, I'm a very, very outspoken tech leader in Europe to say that we have an obligation to not constantly run to the U.S., we had a choice. Where do we list? Do we list in Germany? Do we list in London? Do we list in the U.S.? And everyone that I talked to, oh, go to NASDAQ, ring the bell in New York, whatever it may be. And I'm, by the way, a New Yorker. So it, it did appeal to me, I must admit, a little bit. Um, but the flip side of the coin is I felt a deep sense of, of passion to keep European-born tech in Europe. Now, we ended up deciding for Germany because the company was born in Germany. There were links to Germany, and it was our way of kind of giving back to that community, if you will. And um, there were very few tech resources, like a fast-growing, um, you know, highly castrated, high-margin business that could, that, that's born out of Germany, that's listed in Germany. So we thought it'd be a good place for us to stay. However, we see so many of our counterparts, our friends, our colleagues running back to New York to list their businesses. And I think that that's the wrong thing to do. I think that we need to really help educate our investors, our governments, our people um, about what European tech could do for Europe. And we need to look at private investments into the regions and, our, and the regional tech companies. You know, we are growing faster than our North American and Asian counterparts. You know, we believe that, it, you know, that the investment we make in the technology is central to fostering a broader ecosystem of innovation, of success. 50 billion in the first half of, of last year uh, was invested into European tech companies. At the current rate, the total for the year, as we go in half to half into this year, will be nearly 100 billion, 100 billion euros. I mean, that's 140% growth. It's one of the highest investments of a major ecosystem anywhere in the last five years. And that's Europe, right? That's us. I mean, you know, we'll put for the intents and purposes for today, we'll put UK in that bucket. But the rate of investment is a, is, a, is a virtuous flywheel, right? The more capital attracts more talent, the talent seeds success, the success breeds more success and more talent and so on and so on. And so if we could just, you know, invest more, if, you know, we're in a good position, I think, to compete with the US. We're in a fantastic position to be able to compete and win against China um, and with regards to tech innovation. And that benefits everywhere, not, not just the European market, but by the way, it, it, it benefits everyone around the world, right? So I think the answer to the question, you know, can we compete? Yeah, absolutely, we, we can compete. We will compete and we will win. 100 new unicorns were produced in Europe in 2021. The continent itself has, you know, with us, the continent and us combined 321 unicorns. That's up, I think, 100 from the year before. It'll be up 100, 200 this year. Um, we're seeing lots of funding. We, we continue to produce more tech IPOs than the US, 122 IPOs here across the European continent, including the UK, 122 versus 89 in the US and 21. 
you know, SUSE being the largest enterprise software tech IPO in all of Europe last year. But the point is, we need to keep tech born in Europe, in Europe, because that will have a greater influence on skills, on success, on investment, on innovation, on governments, on people, our communities, our GDP, and inevitably it'll lead to a better place so that we can give back to the rest of the world as well. Uh, well, it's, it's very interesting that you floated in Germany, because obviously, you know, we had Kazoo, for example, go and float on the NASDAQ when everyone was desperate for them to float in the in the UK. And it's interesting, I mean, obviously it's a question I wrestle with all the time. I mean, my I'm a slightly sanguine in the sense that I say in terms of European tech, you know, first of all, a lot of it is about money. You know, the kind of wall of money in the US is just of a different scale to what you would find in Europe. And the risk appetite for that money is much, much greater. And also actually management in terms of people with the right expertise. And I think it's, a, it's an organic process. The more people get comfortable with investing in tech and the more executives you get and um, founders who have been there and done it and are willing then to deploy their capital and their expertise, the better it gets. But it is also, it's, it's an interesting thing for a politician. You know, you get very kind of patriotic, I guess is the word about, you know, having a UK company or the French in particular, the French company. But there's definitely a public policy angle because at the end of the day, if your world is dominated by Amazon, Facebook, Google, the rules are set in Washington, not in the UK. It's interesting, for example, uh, I know your brain's in this whole debate about digital sovereignty. You know, we have this kind of slightly bizarre standoff between the US and Europe on data transfer, for example. Yeah. Uh, which I think is now going to, you know, we've now got the Transatlantic Technology Council. I think it's going to calm down because of the Ukraine situation where people have suddenly worked out who their friends and allies are and you get more out of cooperation. But I mean, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what your your kind of reflection on that those kind of data nationalism as it's called, or data protectionism. Yeah, I mean, protectionism sounds like um, a very positive angle, doesn't it? Um, I think if we look at the Digital Markets Act, right, I mean, it intended to ensure um, a higher degree of competition in the European digital market space by preventing, you know, some of the largest companies from abusing their market power. So that's one side, right, of, of digital markets as it pertains to Europe and the, and the rest of the world. You know, I, I think if you believe in an open innovation like we do, right, and, and you really believe in this open source and open ideas and philosophies, then the idea of restricting people's options or locking customers or data, whatever it may be, into a certain ecosystem just doesn't really make sense. So I personally support the ethos as an example of the Digital Markets Act. But it's a clear conversation that's going around big tech in the U.S., big tech in Europe, you know, as one component. And you know, in such a polarized political environment, one of the few areas where voters tend to agree is clamping down on big tech as one anchor, right? So you know, people talk about the Brussels effect. We saw it with GDPR, right? You know, legislation and um, spreading around the world and continuing to inspire countries from Brazil to Japan. I think DMA as an example will have a similar journey, and that pertains obviously to you know to big tech and you know is big tech too big. Um, you know, then then you've got the you know the other side of the coin, which is you know the 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 sovereignty, like what happens with data, right? What happens with security? How do you passing it across? I mean, Germany is a great example. I mean, the, the you know you can't use any data um, in Germany if someone called Melissa. If there's two people called Melissa living on the same street. It's a breach instantly. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, as we look at digital sovereignty in, 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 in general, right, some of the turns of the world has taken in the past decade. And even so, as we just said, um, in, the, in the last four or three months, a protectionist direction 
is, is where we're being funneled, right? So you've got big tech on the one hand, you've got the protection and uh, protection that we need to in, embody on the other. So there's a, di- there's a difference, I think, between sovereignty and nationalism. Data nationalism takes us, in my view only, a bit backwards. I think the world is better off when we pull the walls down, not put them up, right? It applies the same way that we handle data. The more open we are, the faster we innovate, the better off I think everyone could be. But it's a global world and you've got technologies, data people that are constantly crossing um, borders almost as naturally as one takes a breath. I mean, it's it's almost, it, it, you know, the attempt to exert control, even in the most well-intentioned ways, could backfire. And I, you know, I think we really need to think about data, the movement of data, how it's been founded on ideas of, you know, what, what control and transparency and the differences mean and, and what can, you know, what's the heart of example for open source, right? I mean, they're saying that what 92% of Western data is hosted inside of the US and, and you've got to be very careful about, you know, where the data is stored, how it's stored, what proprietary systems are controlling businesses, you know, but I, so I think, you know, I, if we look at the European Commission in general, it's noted that open source software prevents vendor lock-in, it creates technology independence and that, and data goes along with it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I support the regulation of big tech in the sense of monopolies, but also obviously safety on platforms. You know, we've got the online safety bill coming through uh, the UK. But I mean, there is no doubt at all that some of this is driven by nationalism on both sides. The, the American government is traditionally very, very a vigorous defender of its homegrown companies. As it should, as it should, because it brings a whole lot of of, of money, right? Attention. Investment. And the French, uh, the French can't bear the fact that anyone is more successful than them. And the Germans, <laughs> the Germans are paranoid about security based on their history, particularly with East Germany. But anyway, I want to end on a final question, which is a, a terrible cliche question, and it's terrible that I have to talk about it really in this day and age. But you are a woman, and you founded the Women in Tech Network to empower, empower women in tech roles quite recently. And you also are the co-founder of Inner Wings, which is a charitable organization aiming to build confidence in young girls. And obviously the reason I hate asking the question is because you are still a rarity as a woman at the top of a highly successful tech company. And we still have a massive problem in tech. Very few female founders, for example, uh, still not enough women in senior executive positions in tech. So obviously given your experience, I would love your reflections on that yes yeah, so it's it's kind of the obligatory question isn't it when it you're is. with a female ceo <laughs> um, especially in tech you know it's really funny because i lament about the fact that i mean i must get i wouldn't have asked it but you are you do lean in on this issue so it's quite I, I do i do i you know I, I i mean i got really bored of hearing myself talk about being a woman in tech <laughs> about about eight years ago um here in the uk we had something when about about eight nine years ago we had a statistic in the UK that was, a, you know, we had somewhere around 16 or 17% women in tech and women in leadership in tech. And then we talked about it and talked about it in the UK. And I stood up with everyone who will listen to me. I talked about it. I mean, I'm obviously a woman, not just my voice, but if you could see what I look like, I'm very feminine, right? I'm very big hair, high heels, the whole bit, right? So I'm, I'm definitely a woman and, I, and I'm proud to talk about it, right? So I, um, we, stopped, we stopped talking, you know, we got, I got bored of hearing myself continue carrying on about how important diversity is. 
to, to the world, not just technology, but to decision makers, to governments, to people, to you know, the diversity of thought can change the world. And um, when we stopped talking about it about eight years ago, the number started, it started going up for 16, 17, 18. We stopped talking about it went down, it went down to 16%. And, and do you know that nearly a decade later that we're still hovering in the UK at around 16 or 17, on a good day, maybe 18%, the numbers haven't really changed. And you know, when I look at why the numbers haven't changed, it's we've got this we've got this trapdoor problem, which is swallowing up women in their careers. Whether it's you know worrying about childcare, whether it's you know the pandemic did us no service for women in technology or women in leadership at all. Um, you know, whether it's caring for aging parents and having changes you know changes going on in life that they had to step aside, and that trapdoor never allowed us the women to get back. Now that's one part of the problem. The second part of the problem is, and I'm extremely passionate about the role that government must play in developing technology into the curriculum. And I've, I've been banging on about it for a long time and how critically vital it is to put STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math in the hands of young girls, because we need to change the pipe, the pipeline, like you would in any business, right? And you talk about what my revenues are. We always talk about the pipeline. Same for women. If we don't have young girls entering the workforce and he's at least being you know, well-versed and thinking that technology is cool enough of a place to consider, um, and we don't put it into the curriculum that's being led by the government, then we're gonna have a really huge disadvantage against the number of women we can have in our pipeline to later on in the next decade, feed loads of you know, strong and powered determined women to help us lead companies. So that's why I founded a UK charity called Inner Wings. And Inner Wings is all about building confidence and bravery in young girls aged six to 12, because science tells us that's where stereotypes begin to be developed. So, you know, what's a boy's sport and a girl's sport and what's a guy's you know, right for the guys, what's right for the gals. And we don't want that to happen. We want the UK to be a world where we have a load of very empowered, very equal, very determined, very confident young girls that grow into very successful and con contributors to the society um, um, and women in the world. So um, yeah, I, I think, you know, what have we done? We've done a lot. We're gonna continue to do more. I'm really passionate about this topic as, as you could quite tell my, I think my voice and my enthusiasm has picked up pace in the last four minutes, but you know, I, I may be the first woman to list a billion euro business on the Deutsche Börse in Germany, but I definitely will not be the last. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.